It's a great day. It's the shortest day of the year for sunlight, which means every day from now on gets longer a time for hope. It's also a time for hope with the vaccine spreading out. And we hear tell today that the number of hospitalizations for COVID is dropping. This Christmas week is bringing us all sorts of reasons for optimism. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Chris Bernowski is taking the day off. Going to have a lot of that in the weeks ahead. Lauren Jane, did you have a good weekend? It was okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Christmas star tonight. Yeah, I put that on my calendar to check it out. So um, we watched the uh, jug band Christmas Emmett Otters from like 1977 with my kids. That was the one of the highlights of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, some joy there. Let's begin. Is the reason that Ohio lawmakers have not repealed the corrupt $1.3 billion nuclear bailout because of a backroom deal being worked out by Bill Seitz and the utility in line to get that corrupt cash? Jane Cahoon, this story boggled my mind, but we've asked this question repeatedly over the past two months. Is First Energy and now Energy Harbor, the company that got the nuclear plants dished off to them after the corrupt deal was done, working the back room? Do they still have influence? How many times have we asked that question? The answer is a big fat yes, as Jeremy Pelzer reported. And what they're claiming is one of the most outrageous things I've heard in this so far. So take us through it so that I can throw the flag. Oh, great. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's definitely influence going on behind the scenes. That was the, the big reveal of this story. Representative Bill Seitz, as you mentioned, he's, he's a House Bill 6 supporter who's long been friendly to the utilities and and sometimes he's refreshingly candid so he he did tell Jeremy yesterday that he's been talking to uh, the lobbyist for Energy Harbor which as you said is the former first energy subsidiary that that owns the two nuke plants that are going to get the subsidies under this corrupt law but anyway they I I don't know if I can explain this right but they want state lawmakers who who are trying to decide what to do with this corrupt law to allow it to decide whether or not they accept these subsidies because... Okay, so let's pause right okay. here so everybody can laugh <laughs> and and then let's continue after they finish laughing because that's just preposterous. Okay, go ahead. Because there, there was some sort of federal regulatory ruling that actually might make these subsidies a liability for Energy Harbor. This is according to Bill Seitz. Bill Seitz is in the Republican House leadership team, and he's trying to craft some sort of uh, a deal with them. So I guess the reason that they might not want the money is that late last year, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission ruled that power generation companies that receive state subsidies like these can only sell their electricity in the region's long-term regional capacity market at a higher rate um, than they would otherwise be able to charge. So this rule would would make it harder for Energy Harbor to sell electricity from these two two plants. Whereas, you know, under the subsidies, they would have to subject themselves to an audit to make sure they really need the money. <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm sorry, this is under the reform that they're considering. Anyway, Seitz uh, said that, that the proposal he's working on would allow Energy Harbor to make, quote, an objective, reasonable judgment, whether it is better to go for the subsidy than the audit or or to go for their chances in the capacity market. 
So, right. you know, it's all about all right. what Energy Harbor wants, right? I, I can't believe you got through that with a straight face. Look, there's so many problems. You can't with this. see the my first face. Is, the first is the preposterousness of maybe they're going to turn down 1.3 billion. That's just ridiculous. I can't believe he's peddling that to Ohioans. He must think we're all morons. The the second part of this is that this still would not require them to show anything that they need the money. Remember, Seitz and his colleagues all gave this $1.3 billion benefit to First Energy at the time without requiring a single piece of evidence that the nuclear plants needed the money because First Energy provided $60 million. It was used for bribes and Larry Householder and all the sleaze to get this thing passed. So so we've been hearing Seitz is in the back room saying things like, hey, if we don't do anything long enough, Ohioans will forget it. He's trying to work a deal that protects this still. How is that in service to Ohioans? The idea that, you know, they might not actually want the $1.3 billion. So let's let them decide. That's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they got the $1.3 billion because of corruption. You're supposed to be taking it away. And it seems like Sites is working to protect the utility at the expense of the taxpayer. Does anybody believe that there is any company in America when faced with the choice of taking $1.3 billion or not taking $1.3 billion, would turn it down? You want me to answer that question? <laughs> just, this, is, this is the height of, of just cynicism in this legislature. We've wondered for six months, why are these guys not killing this thing? It was forged in corruption. And now we hear that Bill Seitz is in a back room working a deal to protect it. This stinks to the high heavens. I hope the feds are listening. I hope they're paying attention to how this deal is being put together because it stinks to the high heavens that we're going to give them the choice on whether they actually need the Well, money. you know, we don't know whether lawmakers are going to agree to this proposal. But, you know, what's really sad here is here we are, supposedly tomorrow is the last day of their lame duck session, and they still have not figured out what to do about this law. I mean, a lot of people think this should be a no-brainer. Get rid of it. It's corrupt. But, you know, it's just they're, they're, they're paralyzed here. They've got these competing proposals. They've got people trying to get it to the out of committee through a discharge petition. I mean, there's all sorts of... Uh, but they have been on, but they've done nothing trying to protect it. I mean, that that if you want to know what the problem is, Energy Harbor is part of the conversation. Energy Harbor should have no role in this conversation. The fact that they have this influence still tells you that very little has changed in Columbus. We understand it now. And, and the face of this problem is now Bill Sites. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Do Ohio lawmakers have the votes to override if Ohio Governor Mike DeWine vetoes the Stand Your Ground bill that was passed on Friday? Jane Cahoon, we have talked about the Stand Your Ground bill and how controversial it is. A lot of the Democrats and black legislators believe the Republicans have no sense of reality of the violence that's going on in the neighborhoods and how these kinds of laws are used mostly to justify the shootings of black people. Mike DeWine has been pretty vocal that he doesn't want to see bills like this until the legislature acts on his gun reforms. So this is interesting. We're at the end of the session. DeWine could veto this with very little time left in the year. What happens? Do, do, do they have the time? Do they have the votes to force this? I don't think they do because I, I don't think they have 
the votes or the time. But I, I guess we'll see how it plays out. You know, this wasn't uniformly supported by Republicans, for one thing. Representative John Eklund, a, a Republican from Geauga County, made a very cogent argument about this. He's he's a real smart guy. He worries about the legal implications of it and, and fears that this law is going to take away judicial uh, discretion and prevent juries from properly evaluating self-defense cases. He, he thinks it's, you know, I don't know if he used the word disaster, but he, he doesn't like the law. But um, anyway, the, the governor has 10 days to veto the bill after it gets to him. So number one, I'm not sure exactly when it's getting to him or whether it's already gotten to him, but 10 days is almost until the end of the year. Now, tomorrow is supposed to be their last session day. So he could wait, you know, until the last day uh, that he's allowed to do it and then veto it. And then they would have to call the lawmakers back into session before the end of the year. So the timetable is really tight there. And then they'd have to get these three-fifths majorities in each of the chambers, which just doesn't seem likely in either case. However, will he veto it? That's the question. We we don't know that. As you said, he sent some strong signals like, don't send me this kind of bill when you haven't even dealt with my gun reforms that are reasonable and will save lives. Don't be sending me stuff like this. So that's kind of a, you know, a signal there, but he hasn't said outright that he's going to veto it. I can't imagine he won't veto it. He stood before Ohio day after day at his briefings talking about the shootings of people, largely black people in Ohio because of gun violence. And this this law would make that more likely. Let me ask you a Robert's rules of order kind of thing, though. Normally, at the end of the session tomorrow, they would vote to formally adjourn the session, that the two year session would be over. If they do that, can they can they formally reopen it or do they then if the, if they're worried about this, do they not formally adjourn and just leave the session open? Oh, that's a good question. One that I have not researched, Chris, but what's well, your turn for the question that can't be answered? <laughs> I'd rather have a sports question and then you know Laura could help me with it. But yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly how that works. I mean I think the time runs out on this because, it, you know, the General Assembly sessions are two years. This is the end. So I think, you know, when the year ends, it's over. But I don't know whether they have to formally say it's over or not. Okay. Well, this is going to be interesting to see this one play out. Uh, and if Mike DeWine signs that, I, I do think he's going to catch some flack because people will look at that as a bit of hypocrisy based on, all of the times he's pulled headlines out from the news media across the state about gun violence. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are a bunch of people across the country trying to cash in on whatever name replaces the Indians for the Cleveland baseball team? Laura Johnston, Bob Higgs did a really fascinating story about this, and it's not really the cash grab you'd think it would be. So what do we know? No, it's really not straightforward at all. So Bunch of people, a lot in California, are trademarking names they see as possibilities to rename the Indians and with the goal that the, the team might have to buy them out. So names include Cleveland Spiders, the Guardians, the Rockers, and some ones I really hadn't heard tossed around before. Crowhoppers, Squires, the Citizens, about, you know, more than 20 names have been filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and only one of them came from Northeast Ohio, and that's Cleveland Heroes, submitted by a Norton resident. 
They started to get applied for right after the team announced in July that they were going to determine the best path forward regarding a new name. And then two weeks after, I saw a flurry of activity. Most of these applications want a trademark not for an actual team, but for use in goods and services such as clothing, um, fan paraphernalia. But yeah, you're right. This is not a slam dunk scheme to make money. Applicants aren't even guaranteed a trademark and it costs $225 just to file. The deliberation process can take a couple of years and they allow public comment so the Indians could argue against it. They, so there's no guarantee at all. Yeah, and you have to attest that you're using it. We've had some different trademarks in our company over the years and the lawyers get in touch as they come up to their expiration saying, hey, the, are you using this? Is, is this still in use? Because if it's not in use, you have to tell the the office and, and no longer keep it. So there was one one person in Bob's story that had set up a website and was actually selling, I think, made to order, made on the dime t-shirts and baseball caps with the name on it so that they could claim they're running a business with that trademark. But the rest of them, Bob found no evidence they were being used. Yeah. And he found a guy who I think did it with the Washington football team. And he'd already spent $20,000 of his own money (laughs) to this scheme. And you're like, how much money do you think they're going to buy out for? Yeah, that's a tough one. Interestingly enough, the Indians have three names trademark that date from the early 20th century. Um, the Broncos, the Naps, and the Cleveland Blues. You could go back to those. Okay. It's an interesting one. Check out Bob's story on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After we wondered last week where Senators Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman were on helping people cope with the interminable U.S. Postal Service delays, especially in Northeast Ohio, did either of them step up? Laura Johnston, this one warms my heart because it's a politician being responsive to his constituents. Yeah. So um, they both did, both Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman, though Brown was first. Um, and he said that people who have problems with the post office should call his office. So I really should have looked up his phone number, I guess, and and, and recited it on this podcast so everybody can start dialing to Sherrod Brown. I wonder how many Paul, uh, calls they've gotten. But um, Brown said the permanent fix is to replace the U.S. postmaster, Louis DeJoy, who was appointed by Trump in June. He's overseen all this cost cutting, which a lot of people point to as the problem. It it, it adds up with the increase in online shopping, coronavirus, uh, sick time, all of that other kind of stuff. And then Portman said he's sponsoring the Postal Service Emergency Assistance Act, which uh, could help shore up the agency's finances. It's a bipartisan bill that makes about $25 billion certified by the USPS as necessary to cover lost revenue um, and expenses resulting from COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, the Portman doesn't do anything for the people that are waiting for no. their Christmas presents now. Or, you know, you said it took eight days for a Christmas card to get from your house to Shaker Heights. Um, I, I was impressed that Sherrod Brown immediately stepped up. I mean, as soon as the call went out, he said, yeah, call me. I'll do everything I can to work with you to get it done. It It's still surprising how little response we're getting from the Cleveland Postmaster. It's it's one of the worst examples of public service I've seen from an agency that's there to serve. You got trucks lined up over at the facility on, on Orange Avenue and you get nothing from them. No explanation. The only thing that's changed, and I, I mentioned this to you guys this morning, I get my daily email from the post office telling me what's coming with little pictures in the envelopes. And on the top of it now, it says, we're having terrible delays. Don't look for any of this stuff anytime soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> we'll Merry Christmas. 
I got to say, UPS and FedEx seem to be doing a much better job. We mailed a bunch of stuff on uh, Saturday, and it's all supposed to get across the country to where it's supposed to be by Wednesday, and the tracking is on. So uh, we most certainly did not go to the U.S. Postal Service for that one. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did the Ohio Supreme Court have to say about a Lorraine judge's probation requirement that a deadbeat dad not get any more women pregnant? Jane Cahoon, this is an interesting case. You've got a guy who's $200,000 in arrears with 11 different children and a judge who's frustrated that they can't get the money. What happened after that? Yeah, this this guy's name is London Chapman, and he's actually fathered 13 children, but but he was charged for not paying child support to 11 of them. And as you said, he owed more than $200,000. He did plead guilty to the charges, and Lorain County probate judge James Walther put him on probation for five years. But as a condition of that probation, the judge ordered Chapman to make every effort to stop fathering children. Chapman's lawyer now, however, says that that was unconstitutional, and it and this was a quote, it castrates him with paper. So she appealed that ruling, and um, this ended up in the Ohio Supreme Court, which on Friday ruled in favor of Chapman and said the law doesn't really allow the, the judge to do that. They they said that the the order was overly broad and it and it failed to meet the goals of the probation. Um, so it said that the the procreation prohibition is not reasonably related to the goals of probation. So while you and I might think this guy should be ordered not not to not to create any more kids, it just didn't didn't fly in the court of law. Well, and that was the prosecutor's argument. It's like, hey, every time he creates another kid, we create another situation where the kid isn't being supported. Can't we stop him from doing that? But the Supreme Court basically saying, look, there's you can only go so far with these orders. You have tools available to you to deal with this. I mean, they could lock the guy up, right? I mean, I mean, if you if you continue to defy a judge's order to provide the child support, they can right. put you in the But jail. apparently he did get a job, so perhaps he's making some sort of payments. I doubt he'll ever make a significant dent in $200,000, but uh you know, putting him behind bars kind of um it, it, it eliminates it. the chance that he's going to be able to contribute to his children. So what I'm curious about is the two kids that he's not charged for. Are those his favorites <laughs> or are they aged out of the system and he doesn't have to pay for them anymore? Yeah, I because, wonder. Because we'll never know. It's this week in the CLE. Does Cuyahoga County still have a stay-at-home advisory? And if it does, when does it end? Laura Johnston, we start today with some good news. The hospitalizations are dropping with the coronavirus. The vaccine is spreading, although this thing in England is very scary. If it gets into this country before we get vaccinated, we're all going to get sick. But what is Cuyahoga County saying? Because their order was to expire last week. Right. It expired Thursday and they announced an extension on Friday. So that runs until January 15th. There are no enforcement measures, just like in the original order. It limits gatherings of no more than 10 people, whether inside or out. It urges people to avoid indoor contact with anyone beyond their immediate household. And employers are strongly encouraged to have employees work from home. And schools are suggested to operate remotely. So we'll see... This doesn't really change anything. We'll see if people listen uh, during the Christmas holidays and whether schools, which I think are all pretty much on winter break right now, um, actually do come back in January in person. 
So I, I'm I'm curious. Were they just incompetent and they forgot it expired? <laughs> did I get that I have 24 hours where I could just run around all over town as much as I wanted? If it expired Thursday, why didn't they renew it Thursday? Do these people still have no idea what they're doing? Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I asked, um, you know, I emailed the uh, Board of Health on Thursday because I was updating one of our stories and I realized, oh, today is the ex- you know expiration date. And then they're like, well, we'll have news tomorrow. I'm like, Oh, okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for reminding us, Laura. We weren't paying attention. <laughs> this board is so inept. I, I just, I hope when this pandemic is over, one of the things we've learned is we've got to get rid of that the county health board system and come up with something that one is accountable and two is competent. I mean, it's mind boggling. It's so important to put out the order. Oh, it expired yesterday. We'll renew it today. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With Jim Jordan promising to play a big role in maneuvering to undermine the election of Joe Biden as president, did we have a previous Ohio congressperson who also tried to block the certification of the Electoral College vote in a presidential race? Jane Cahoon, this is a great story by Sabrina Eaton, filled with history, filled with good perspective on what's going on today. In, in the case of what happened before, it was a much more laudatory effort. This is this is a fascinating piece of history. And and it's it's so funny because Sabrina, you know, it's great to have that institutional knowledge because she was she was with us when that happened and covered this when it happened. So she uh, she wrote a story reminding us that, in fact, the late Stephanie Tubbs Jones, who was a Democratic congresswoman in 2005, she was the last person to employ this rarely used process of challenging the electoral vote in in Congress. And this involves the 2004 election of George W. Bush over John Kerry. But um, Tubbs Jones had a different motive for this. She, rather than seeking to uh, invalidate the election and overturn it, as as Jordan and, and other Trump allies are trying to do, she said her goal was to, you know, delay the official presidential vote to highlight these problems that that plagued Ohio's 2004 election. I, if you were around at the time, you might remember there were these computer glitches and all these long voting waits in Cuyahoga County, people waiting hours to vote and and questions about procedures used to uh, reject provisional ballots. This was when Republican um, Ken Blackwell was Secretary of State. But, you know, if you were around during that time, you 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 might remember that it was it was embarrassing for Ohio. But in any event, it, this was a really controversial move by by Tubbs Jones, because you don't just pull this out, you know, uh, willy nilly, but it, it touched off a really fierce debate. And, um, Interestingly, this session, this disruption um, had only happened one other time since 1877 when when she did it. And that was um, in 19 uh, the, the 1968 election, a North Carolina elector who was supposed to support Richard Nixon instead voted for George Wallace. And so that that was the previous disruption. Anyway, I'm sorry I'm being windy here, but the, this is really, really interesting. S- to do this, you have to have one House member and one Senate member lodge the challenge. So Tubbs Jones got Senator Barbara Boxer of California, uh, who was in the Senate at the time, to do it in that chamber. So this touched off 
a debate that lasted a couple of hours. And she, Tubbs Jones, described her position by saying, I raise this objection neither to put the nation in the turmoil of a proposed overturned election, nor to provide cannon fodder or partisan demagoguery for my fellow members of Congress. I raise this objection because I am convinced that as a body, we must conduct a formal and legitimate debate about election ir- irregularities. So she wanted to draw attention to her people being disenfranchised in the, in this election. So here's another really interesting part. Sherrod Brown, Rob Portman, and Mike DeWine were all in Congress at the time. Oh. Brown, Brown and Portman were in the House, and DeWine was a, a senator. So Brown... Um, did argue that it was important to shed light on these problems and, and saying Ohioans should not be forced to wait in line for hours to vote. Uh, but then Portman and DeWine really, really condemned the tactic, um, wh- which is interesting because, you know, this time around, they've kind of gone out of their way to defend Trump's, t- uh, Trump's right to, to legally, you know, pursue legal challenges to the election. Although, although they have not. They haven't weighed in on this. No, no. And they, and they, I, I mean, and Portman has come out and right. pretty much said Joe Biden's president. Right. It'll be interesting right. to see if they stay mute on it. I mean, there was a big difference that in, in 2008, there were actual difficulties of voting in urban centers like Cleveland. I mean, we wrote a lot of stories right. about it this time. That is absolute fiction being peddled by the president and his cronies. You know, the president is now looking like he's trying to exhort people to violence so he can declare martial law. This is the kookiest time I've ever I've ever seen. And I can't wait till this is over and we move on. It's just crazy, crazy town. Uh, And Jim Jordan will be there leading the fictional charge about the stolen election. It's, It's shocking. We talked about this last week. It's shocking that an elected congressperson from Ohio would peddle such false narratives for political aims, even if it undermines everything the Constitution is about. Anyway, good stuff from Sabrina. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. With the architect for the Rock Hall expansion chosen, what will the expansion of the Rock Hall look like? Laura Johnston, Steve Litt broke this story late last week about the the choosing of the architect and what some of the other proposals were. But we now know generally what we're going to see on the lakefront. What is it? Yeah. So we're going to see this expansion. They picked the architecture, a New York-based firm called PAU, um, and that's going to be the lead designer. It's an acronym that stands for Practice for Architecture and Urbanism. um, And that beat out more than two dozen firms in a year-long selection process. So the idea is that a 25-year-old Rock Hall, which it's hard to believe it's that old, um, it wants a design for this $50 million expansion that it has a mix of, quote, reverence and irreverence and praise, pays tribute to I.M. Pei, the original architect. So the basic idea is this low-rise, two-level, 50,000-square-foot addition. It's going to be shaped like a giant triangular wedge of galvanized steel rising out of the ground between the Rock Hall and the Great Lakes Science Center at North Coast Harbor. And the idea is to mediate between the the pyramid of the original Rock Hall, the waterfront, and downtown. And there is going to be some input from supporters and the public to really um, fine-tune this design. Steve mentioned in his story uh, there were other finalists, and then there was one firm that wasn't a finalist that put their proposal online, and it included a tower on the lakefront which which would have been very, very different. It's a fascinating 
all of the various approaches that came through from the people competing for this uh, contract. Yeah, and I think th- I think this is going to fill in that kind of empty spot between the Science Center and the the Rock Hall, and it's it's going to make the Rock Hall more user friendly. I think they're going to have a new lobby, ticketing area, a new driveway with dro- drop off close by, classrooms, administrative offices, multi purpose spaces for events, so you can use that lakefront promenade even better, and a permanent outdoor stage. So that's all something to look forward to when we're allowed to gather again and and it's warm. Yeah, you can't even go in there right now because of the coronavirus. It's all closed down. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, so we do have a, uh, a coronavirus briefing today, right, from the governor, Jane? That's what we think. We haven't gotten the official advisory yet, but we think we're going to have them today and, and Wednesday. But you never know with Mike DeWine. Sometimes he uh, cancels them and sometimes he calls them unexpectedly. Although he has good news to sell. He's going to want to talk today. I mean, we we do really, we, Rich Exner jumped on this a week ago, like the, the idea that we may have crested, but the evidence is becoming stronger that the numbers are dropping. And Although they're still incredibly high. Let's not pretend that. They're you know. high, but, but you know, the, you can't drop to low until they crest and start right, back down. Right. So, so that's a good sign. And uh, I think he'll probably want to talk about that. We'll have to see. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. 